when you think of a successful preacher who brings revival and conversions everywhere they go, what do you picture? You might picture somebody smooth or kind of wearing a suit like Billy Graham filling stadiums. Maybe you'd picture somebody like George Whitfield, who was known not just for having incredible rhetorical ability, but who had a powerful voice that could fill even people far off in fields. You probably wouldn't picture John the Baptist. Now, John looked a lot more like a homeless man than a successful preacher. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore camel fur and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he wasn't exactly a picture of refinement, nor was he in a great geographical center that was just filled with people hungry for a message. And yet, somehow, John's preaching brought revival in Israel. Now, the question I have is how? And so what I want us to do this morning, I want us to look at John the Baptist's wild preaching, as I'm calling it, in the wilderness. Not just because I want to dissect why he was so effective. No, I want us to study it so that we can try and hear his words for ourselves. I want the greatest prophet who's ever lived's voice to come into our ears and to stir our hearts. Um, so this morning, we'll look at four characteristics of John's wild preaching in Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 3 and stand if you are able um, for the reading of God's word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the regions of Etureia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Sophias, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our teacher, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And what are we to do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, 
added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here in this place this morning. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and would help us and would aid us, that we can see John as your word has presented him to us, and that our ears would listen and heed his voice, that we would see Jesus. Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. If you'd like to take notes in your bulletin, our first point or our first characteristic of John's wild preaching is that wild preaching proclaims salvation. So wild preaching proclaims salvation. Our passage begins somewhat in a strange place. It begins with lots of names and titles that I was struggling to pronounce. But Luke, he does this on purpose. Okay, he's not just giving us some boring biographical details. He has a theological point. So if you look again at this list in these first two verses, look at the titles. We see Caesar, the emperor. We see a governor. We see three tetrarchs. There are step below governors, and we see two high priests. But where does the word of God come? Not to any of these powerful people, but to John, who isn't even a priest. And what else do we see on this list? We see all these locations. No, don't skip them. We have Caesar in Rome, Judea, Galilee, Iturea, Trachonitis, Lysanias, Abilene, and we have Rome. We have palaces and big buildings all over, even the holy temple of God. But where does the Word of God come? Not to these palaces, not to beautiful design buildings, not to strategic centers of importance if you want to influence people. The Word of God comes in the wilderness. This tells us something about the salvation that John preaches. That salvation is not for the powerful. It is not just for those in influential cities. The gospel and the salvation of Jesus is for the ordinary. And it's preached by ordinary people, sometimes in strange places. Verse 3, and he went into the region all around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John comes and he is preaching the gospel. Out of the wilderness comes the news of forgiveness. And because John is the forerunner of Jesus, yet he still preaches the same gospel. He doesn't preach anything different. Now, he doesn't preach the cross because it hasn't happened yet, but he does preach that forgiveness is available to sinners by the grace of God. And the most important fact of John the Baptist's preaching is not that it takes place in the wilderness. It's not that he wears camel skin and eats locusts. It is that he preaches the gospel and the salvation of Christ. Verse 4, he quotes Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley is filled and every mountain and hill are brought low. The crooked are made straight and the rough places shall become level ways. It's a lot of metaphor in Isaiah. What does he mean? After all, why are we filling up valleys and why are we smashing mountains and hills? What it means is John is preparing the way for Jesus. He is making it easier to see Jesus and easier for Jesus to come to us. It's like when you put it at the interstates or roads, you cut down trees and you make the way flat so that it's easy to travel. John is trying to make it as easy as possible to travel to Jesus so that all flesh can see the salvation of God. John's preaching proclaims God is no longer high up in the heavens where none of us can see him. He's no longer on Mount Sinai, surrounded by smoke and fire and thunder like we talked on Wednesday. 
He is no longer above where if we saw him, we would die. He's here. And he's here in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can no longer have to be crooked. We no longer have to be broken or something's fundamentally wrong with us. We no longer have to be so sinful that anyone, we wonder if anyone could love us. We can be made straight our ways level. Because Jesus has come to make us right. And the gospel proclaims there's forgiveness for even the most wicked. The gospel proclaims that even the roughest parts of our lives can be made smooth by the hands of the carpenter. Because God has come down. Because Jesus is low where any can find him. It's not difficult. All we have to do is to cry out for repent- in repentance. And Jesus will find you. What John says is that Jesus has come down. You don't have to risk death and drive to the top of mountains to see it or go deep into the valley. Salvation is here because Jesus is here, and it's more beautiful than anything you could ever see. So that's our first characteristic, John's wild preaching. It proclaims salvation. There's forgiveness of sins, but, well, how do we get this forgiveness? Well, the second characteristic is this. Wild preaching calls for true repentance. Or wild preaching, it calls for repentance. And there's a difference between true and false repentance isn't there? And John rebukes anyone who wants to go through the motions of false repentance. Verse 7, he says, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. That's a very strange thing for John to do, to rebuke the crowd when they're doing what he just told them to do. Right? He's preaching to a big crowd. He's giving the invitation and the massive crowd responds. They all come forward. Yes, we want to be baptized. It's most preachers dream, right? But instead of celebrating, instead of praising God and saying, wow, isn't this amazing? He rebukes them and insults them, calls them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. He's calling them lying snakes. And he wonders why they think they can just escape the wrath of God. Now, why does he do this? He does this because he doesn't want them to think that false repentance is going to save them. Because anyone can walk into the water and get wet. Anybody can raise their hand at a revival and say they got saved or sign a card or repeat some words. But John isn't interested in numbers or bragging about how many people he baptized. He wants true repentance. Verse 80 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So true repentance, if your repentance is real, it has to bear fruit. It means that somebody who is repentant acts like it. Somebody who is sorry for what they just did doesn't do it again immediately. Okay? They don't act like they're repentant just when they're walking the aisle. They also act like they're repentant when they go home, when the service is over. They act like they're repentant when they're back in regular situations in their ordinary life. You know, I saw a big revival one time. Um, A preacher came to my high school and he proclaimed the gospel and it was really powerful. He called for everyone, not just to be saved, but for those who were to, to dedicate their lives to Christ and to come forward. And so many people came forward that eventually I turned around and looked and the whole bleachers were empty. Everybody was just there. It was interesting is, you know, that wasn't really true repentance. It may have been for some. I thought it was for me. But, you know, when I came back to school the next day, things were still kind of the same. It wasn't like everybody just suddenly really did get saved and repent of their sins. That is what John is saying. He says, okay, don't think that you all come down here and now you're good. You all need to really repent. And his audience, they had a big reason. They thought that they were good and thought they were saved. Verse 8, and don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able to take from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. They thought, well, we're God's chosen people. Well, we're the Jews. God has always been our God. So obviously we are going to be saved. And John reminds them, look, God can make more out of rocks if he wants. Don't be that impressed with yourself. And don't think that your heritage is what is going to save you. Repentance is what will save you. Now, we might not have that same temptation, but plenty of us have our own reasons for false repentance. There's some who believe that if they just pray the sinner's prayer once, they can do whatever they want after that, and then they're, they're good. Some will think they can just attend church and go through the motions and do whatever and show up, and then, well, I'm saved. I did that. Some think they can be saved. Well, my parents were Christians, so, you know, I grew up in church. I'm saved, I guess. Some can think, well, I was baptized as a child, so I'm good. I'm in. But there's a severe warning for anyone who thinks they can be saved without repentance, without true repentance. In verse 9, even now the axe is laid down at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. John's a hard preacher. He paints kind of a terrifying image. He says, the axe is waiting. It's hanging over your head, and it is ready to cut, and it's cutting down every tree that doesn't have true repentance. And they're the trees, his crowd and this audience, and God's ready to cut them down. And John doesn't just say this to scare them, but he wants them to understand how serious it is. You cannot just go through the motions. Your repentance has to be true repentance. And so the question is, their question is, well, what does true repentance look like? Which is why they ask him in 10, well, what do we do? You told us to get baptized, we wanted to come, and then you say, no, no, no. What do you want? How can we avoid that acts and judgment? And graciously, John answers. Now, he doesn't answer in mysterious prophet speak. He tells them exactly what fruit looks like. He gives them three different practical ways to show the truthfulness of their repentance. Verse 11, he answers them and he says, Well, whoever has two tunics, share with the one who has none. Whoever has food, go do likewise. It says true repentance reveals itself through generosity. That if you really are repentant, if you really recognize the greatness of what God has forgiven you and the debt that He has wiped clean on your slate, then you will willingly give to those in need. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say about this generosity that you need to give out of your excess. He says, give what you have. Okay, the tunic here, he really is more talking about your undershirt. Okay, everyone, almost everybody has a robe and then underneath it they have their undergarment. And so he's saying, if you notice that somebody doesn't have one and you have two, give them yours. Okay, I don't know about you, I would want more than one pair of clothes. I wouldn't think that was excess. I'm thinking, well, I need to, I just wore that. I would, maybe I should swap this out. But no, John says, hey, if you got two, that's one too many. Give that away. Not if you have extra, not if you have three or four, give it. And he also says with the food, it's if you have any food. Not if you have extra food. Not if you made more. Not if you have too many leftovers and you're to throw them away. If you have some food and they have no food, you give them your food too. Eat less yourself. That's a mark of true repentance. One of my favorite pictures of this kind of generosity, it's um, from the, the book and the movies, Little Women. Um, follows a relatively poor family and their four daughters. And my favorite picture of it is on Christmas morning comes and the girls all wake up and they're very excited because what child is not excited at Christmas? But they're particularly excited for their Christmas breakfast feast that they're going to get to have. But their mother's gone, so they have to wait. But their mother comes home and tells them, girls, I just met a poor woman with her six children, and they don't have anything to eat. 
And so even though they've been waiting an hour and they're hungry, she says, girls, would you give them your breakfast as a Christmas gift? And they do it joyfully. Kind of this wonderful picture of gospel generosity. Watching it um, makes me cry almost every time. And at the end of it, it, it describes and says that was a very happy breakfast, though they didn't get any of it. And when they went away, leaving comfort behind, I think there were not in all the city four merrier people than the hungry little girls who gave away their breakfasts and contented themselves with bread and milk on Christmas morning. True repentance is generous. And it gives, not because it has a lot, but because of what Jesus has given us. But John isn't done. At 12, he says, well, tax collectors came to him to be baptized, and they said, well, teacher, what should we do? And he says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Okay, tax collectors aren't popular people. They still aren't today, but they really weren't then either. Okay, because tax collectors, they're authorized to take taxes from people and give them to Caesar and the government. But they were also authorized to take a little bit off the top for themselves. And so they would. That was how the system worked. That was understood. Well, I became a tax collector so I could take more. And so the tax collectors, they raised taxes, not because the government raised taxes, but because they wanted to raise taxes. Because, well, I want to put a new addition on my house or, you know, increase my cost of living. So as you can imagine, they would be incredibly unpopular people. But some of them come. They want to repent. They want to receive forgiveness for their sins. And John tells them, great, so glad you've come. Here's what you got to do. He doesn't tell them to quit their jobs. He tells them, well, you can do your job, but don't take any more than you're supposed to. Stop being greedy. If you really are repentant, that's going to work itself out in your work. If you really are repentant, then you're now going to have a reputation as an honest tax collector in contrast and indifference to everyone around you. If you really are repentant, you might be willing to be a poor tax collector. If you really are repentant, you're going to be willing to suffer financially. If you're really repentant, you're going to work honestly as unto the Lord. That's what John tells them to do. And he gives them a third application to a different group of people. Verse 14, soldiers come and ask him, well, what are we? What shall we do? And he says to them, well, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. And he doesn't tell this group to quit their jobs and as, as an aspiring pacifist. That makes me uncomfortable. We have to deal with Scripture whether we like it or not. And he tells, like, but like the tax collectors, he tells them, do your jobs with integrity. Because soldiers at this point, they really function more as kind of a police force generally. At least the Jewish soldiers would. So they keep the peace. But they didn't get paid a lot either. Now they might get a place to sleep. They'd get some food, some very basic provisions, but that would be it. And so they would use their power and they would use their influence often out of greed. And they would exhort people, they would threaten people and abuse it in order to get more money to line their pockets. You might picture corrupt police, right, who are abusing their positions to steal from citizens or the government just out of their own greed. Which that still happens today in places, doesn't it? But John tells them, if you really are repentant today, then you better act differently tomorrow. You need to bear the fruit of repentance and that means knock it off. If you're truly repentant, you're going to be content even with your low wages. And your true repentance will look like integrity. And it's probably also implying it's not enough, not just for them to be the ones that stop extorting people. Um, they should probably be using their influence on their friends and their co-workers to not do it either. Okay, they shouldn't profit from it. Should probably be stepping up and saying, no, I won't be a part of this. And you shouldn't either because this is wrong and this is sinful. 
But the question all of us have to ask ourselves is, what does true repentance look like in my life? Okay, you don't get out of true repentance if you're not a tax collector or a soldier or a police officer. Okay, every Christian, all of us, we should be daily showing signs of true repentance. And so when you look at the tree of your life, is there fruit on it? Is there the fruit of generosity? How you share even if you don't have very much? Is there the fruit of integrity? The fruit of working hard rightly with righteousness? Is there the fruit of contentment? Are you content with what God has given you or are you tempted to sin in order to get more? Is there the fruit of kindness, of gentleness, of peacefulness, of love, of patience, the fruit of the Spirit? This is the question John asks and we have to ask ourselves. Now don't misunderstand. John isn't saying these acts are what will earn repentance. He's saying if you are repentant and if you really are asking Jesus for forgiveness, then your life is going to bear a certain kind of fruit. Okay, I've got a bunch of big pecan trees in my yard. They bear pecans. They don't make oranges or cherries or apples. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, if you say you want the forgiveness of sins, then you should be a repentant tree that bears repentant fruit. Not because the fruit is what earns salvation, but because the fruit is who you are. That's what happens. My pecan trees just make pecans because that's who they are. If you are a Christian and you are repentant, then you bear fruit because that's who you are. And if you look at your life and you don't see the fruit of repentance, you might not be a repentant tree. So John's wild preaching, he calls for true repentance, but he doesn't stop there with just something that they should do. He doesn't leave them with an application of stuff to add to their to-do list. He leaves them with something even better. Third characteristic of wild preaching is that wild preaching points to Jesus. Wild preaching points to Jesus. This is really the most important part of anyone's preaching. Um, it has to point to Jesus. If you hear a sermon and it doesn't mention Jesus, or if you hear a sermon that could be true even if Jesus didn't exist at all, or if he wasn't raised for the dead, then you haven't really heard a Christian sermon. And I'd probably be wary of listening to that person again. But John points to Jesus, not just with his preaching, but with his whole life. In verse 15, people come in expectation. And all are questioning in their own hearts concerning John, thinking, well, maybe he might be the Christ. He might be the Messiah. They start to wonder. They realize that something miraculous is happening here. This wild preacher on the wilderness is bringing a spiritual revival. Finally, a prophet is born again. Hundreds of years of nothing and no prophets, and here he is. And miracles happened when he was born. We studied those in the last weeks. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ. But John says, no, not me. He points to Jesus. He doesn't dare claim to be more than he is. In fact, John really isn't that impressed with his own ministry, it seems. 16, he answers them and says, well, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. John's already seen him. And the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says, if you're impressed with me, you're going to be really impressed with Jesus. Because somebody even mightier than me is coming, and his baptism is better than mine. This isn't just John being humble. This is John trying to show them the wonder and the greatness of Jesus. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. And this isn't just John using a prophetic metaphor. It's the most basic task of a slave was to undo their master's sandals when they got back. And it's a fairly degrading act. It especially was then, because people didn't go around touching each other's feet. 
right? This is part of why Jesus washing his disciples' feet much later is such a wonder and a miracle. But even the act of undoing someone's sandal, it was so offensive to the Jews that they wouldn't let Hebrew slaves do it. They would be exempt from this task. But John says, not me. John John is saying, well, I'm not exempt from it, but he's saying, I'm not even worthy to do the most degrading task of a slave because God is so great and so wonderful. I don't deserve to get to do that. That would be a privilege. He's trying to point to the greatness of Jesus. And he says, Jesus' baptism, it is better than mine. I'm just getting you wet with water, but Jesus will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Because the baptism of John is a reality, but the bapt- or is a symbol, but the baptism of Jesus is a reality. After the baptism of John, you're going to be wet. After the baptism of Jesus, you will be born again. After the baptism of John, you'll be motivated to be holy, but after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you will be sanctified and made holy. After the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God will live inside of your body. That's a much better baptism. But there's a flip side to the baptism of Jesus. Verse 17, and I'm saying this all week. John never said what I thought he was going to say next. Verse 17, the winnowing fork is in his hand. And to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John has no problem preaching judgment, does he? I mean, he preaches forgiveness and compassion, but he also preaches judgment and hell, and there's no contradiction between them. Not that John sees. Not that I see. And he wants you to know the danger that you are in and then shows you, well, here is how you can escape. It's right here. It is before you. And so he tells them, there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a fire. And he uses this image of Jesus with a winnowing fork. Now, it might be helpful to picture something just much like a pitchfork. It would be very similar. So what they would do is they would take this tool and they would lift up the grain and kind of toss it up in the air. Okay? And as they did it, the, the junk that they don't want is going to float away. And the heavy stuff, the wheat and the grain that they need would come down to the ground. So they would just keep doing that. So he's saying Jesus is going to do that, but that chaff, all the chaff isn't just going to fly away. Jesus is going to take whatever's left that he doesn't want, and he will burn it with unquenchable fire. You see, there's the baptism of Jesus will come for everyone. And you can experience the fire of the Holy Spirit now, or you can experience the fire of judgment later. But either way, you're getting it. But the fire of Jesus is much like the fire in the book of Daniel. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they went into the fire and were unharmed and walked around with Jesus. But the men who threw them in died in judgment. The fire of Jesus will either bless you or destroy you. And if you're alive now, you have a choice. And John points to Jesus and says, look at him. Look to him and be saved. That's how you escape. The question is, have you been baptized by the fire of the Holy Spirit yet? Have you experienced the baptism that comes from Jesus? Have you looked to Jesus for your salvation because He has the winnowing fork? And the fire is going to touch you one way or another. So you can, it will either refine you and save you or it will crush you. All of us have to choose. The last characteristic of wild preaching is this. Wild preaching is costly. Wild preaching is costly. John's preaching, it is costly most of all to himself. Not because he lives out in the wilderness or has a weird lifestyle, but because it will cost him his freedom. And ultimately, we know 
you've heard the story before, it's going to cost him his life. Here we just get a snippet of John's ministry and his preaching. Verse 18, and so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. He preached the gospel. His ministry was not about fame. He was not a prophet who was after glory and money and a name for himself. He was willing to do what God called him to do no matter what it cost him. Later in the Gospel of John, right, he says, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. I don't mind what it costs me. But verse 19, you see Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reported by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. We go back to a familiar name, right? Herod was one of the most important leaders where John lived. In John's preaching, it was not just generic repentance that he was asking for. He didn't just say, hey, everyone in here, we're all sinners, and you kind of all probably have done stuff wrong, and you should repent. I mean, John, he had no problem telling the crowds to, rebu to rebuke them and knock it off, but he specifically told Herod to repent. And it seems as if he wasn't just telling Herod, hey, Herod, you need to convert to Judaism and, and worship God. It's not a generic call for conversion. See, John called him out specifically and publicly. The main thing that he seems to have called for repentance is the fact that he married his brother's wife. John doesn't whisper about it in corners like most people probably would have as any political gossip. John stands up and says, Herod, that's wrong. You need to repent of your sins. Come and receive forgiveness. And he tells us there, there's other evil things, all the evil things that Herod does. Luke doesn't even want to list them because Herod was such a tyrant. I'm sure John didn't just rebuke him for that, but probably for many other things. I'm sure John told him he needed to repent for the innocent boys that were slaughtered when he tried to kill Jesus. See, John is not impressed with Rome's power. John confronts it, and he speaks truth to power. He does it even if it's unpopular and even if it will cost him. John doesn't mind because he is willing to follow Jesus. John's willing to do what God's called him to do and to be obedient. John's willing to pay the cost even if it means he will die before he sees Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, and he sees salvation happen. John's going to die in the middle of the story. When we get to Luke chapter 9, we'll see he's beheaded and then he kind of fades from the memory of the rest of the gospel account. Like all of the prophets before him, he declares Jesus is coming. And more than the others, he actually gets to see Jesus and say, he's here, look at him. But he doesn't get to see all of his prophecies come true either. And yet he's willing to pay the cost. Why? Because he has faith. Because he believes that following Jesus is worth any price. The question I have is, well, are we willing to follow Jesus even if it's costly? We follow Jesus even if it means we make less money. We follow and obey Jesus even if it's unpopular. We follow and obey Jesus even if it hurts. Even if we don't understand. Even if we can't make sense of it. John did. And we should too. Because the reward is not in this life only. The reward is not just that our sins are forgiven and that we get eternal life, but all of those things come through Jesus and Jesus alone. 
and the life to come that we get to experience with Jesus that we get a taste of here, but in the resurrection to come is worth any price. John thought so. And I do too. So we looked at four characteristics of John's wild preaching this morning. His wild preaching, he proclaimed salvation in the gospel. He called for repentance, especially true repentance. He pointed to Jesus, and it was costly. I hope this morning that we all heed the preaching of this wild prophet and that we look to Jesus for our salvation and our hope and that we bear fruit. We lead us in prayer and invite our worship team to come up one more time. Lord, I ask you would help us look to Jesus. Lord, that we would not look down at our sin and be filled with, with shame and sit and stay there, but that we would look at our sin and look past it and look to you and ask for forgiveness. But I ask that we would look to you in help and in aid for our repentance. Lord, that you would help our repentance to be true because we are so broken and sinful that often even when we think and are trying to follow you, we fail. Lord, would you and your Holy Spirit aid us and help us? Lord, would you help us to be willing to pay any price to follow you because you are worth it? Jesus, I pray that you would help us Help us to heed not the words of man, but the very words of God, your words. Would we not just hear them and be tickled by them, but would our hearts be convicted and changed and transformed? And would we be more like Jesus and be trees that bear true fruit? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we worship our Savior one more time? Amen. Hear this benediction from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace.